do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. First John chapter 3, this morning we are going to be studying verses 11 through 24. I've titled my sermon this morning, Blessed Reassurance. Uh, and I take that title from verse 19 where it says, this is how we shall know we shall are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. As we've seen in this sermon series, the theme of 1 John is the doctrine of assurance. How do you know that your faith in Christ is genuine? Again, our title of the series, So That You May Know. I came across this quote as I was studying for this sermon. It says, the Christian life is like a combination of amnesia and deja vu in which we keep learning what we keep forgetting. We keep learning what we keep forgetting. Another quote, I've heard it said this before, Christians don't need to be taught as often as they need to be reminded. We don't need to be taught as often as we need to be reminded. And here's why. In our sin, we are so prone to wander. We are so prone to forget who God is, what he has done for us, what we are called to in life, and all of the implications of that for every area of our lives. And this forgetting can lead to a lot of spiritual problems in our lives. It can lead to doubt. It can lead to shame and guilt. It can lead to fear. And it can lead to us even beginning to question whether we really are saved, whether God really is there, and whether God really does care about us. And what John is going to show us in this text is how we can reassure our hearts in those moments of struggle. And this is the main point of the text this morning. We find freedom from the condemnation of our hearts when we love one another, when we rest in God's character, and when we keep his commands. So here's the roadmap for this morning. This is kind of a lengthy passage, so I've broken it up into two different sections. And we're going to start by looking at verses 11 through 18. So let's look at these verses together and see what they have to teach us this morning. Verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another, should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. It is the very standard of truth. We thank you, Lord, that your word is sufficient to equip us for every good work. 
We thank you, Lord, that, that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light through the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that this morning as we study your word, that, that, that your love would shine through in our lives, that it would break through uh, any sense of condemnation that we might be struggling with, and that you would motivate us to love one another in the way that you have loved us. Help us to learn from your word this morning and apply it to our lives, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John is going to now begin this section by teaching us what it looks like to love one another. Now, one thing that I've joked about with the other pastors as we've been preparing these messages, one of the hardest parts about preaching 1 John is how much he repeats himself. Like, for example, when you read a letter of Paul, he, I'm starting here, then I'm going here, then I'm going here, then I'm going here. Timothy says, hi, have a nice day. Like that's the end, that's the letter outline pretty much. John, it's like a series of circles that just kind of keep going outward and he keeps coming back. Well, this reminds me of this, but then also this, but then I talked about this earlier. I need to remind you about this. It's just kind of all at once. And he keeps coming back to these same themes over and over again. But I actually think that's good for us because of what I just said. We need to be reminded constantly to love one another. Why does he say it so much? Because it hasn't sunk in yet. That's why he has to keep saying it. Because Christians, 2,000 years later, we struggle with this more than maybe anything else. Genuinely loving one another as Christ has loved us. All of that said, I think there's some unique insights that he's gonna show us in these verses about what it looks like to love one another. And then we'll connect the dots in a few minutes about how that connects to assurance of salvation. So let's talk about what these verses teach us about what it means to love one another. He's gonna start by showing us the opposite of love. John has a tendency in his letters to teach us by way of contrast. When he wants to make a point, he'll often show you the opposite of that point to make the point that much more clear. So when he's telling us to love one another, his illustration, if you will, that he gets from the Old Testament is the polar opposite of what love looks like. So look with me at verse 11. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. What's his illustration of loving one another? We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. To show us to love one another, he's saying, this is what you don't do. You don't want to be like Cain. And now I know a lot of you guys probably know the story, very famous story from Genesis chapter four, but I still think it would be helpful for us to look at that story again. So let's look together at Genesis chapter four, and we'll start in verse two. Let's read the story. I wanna see the way that John is using it and what he's teaching us from it. And again, she bore his brother Abel, now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were out in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is the first story that we read once humanity leaves paradise, leaves the Garden of Eden. We have conflict between siblings that results in the first murder in history. 
We know that Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's offering was accepted. A couple of different places in scripture reference that. For example, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Cain's offering was not from faith, whereas Abel's offering was by faith. But at the end of the day, Cain hated his brother. Look at the progression in the text. It says he was very angry. And as a result, it led to murder. But John gives us a little bit more insight into this story where he says, why did he murder him? Verse 12, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. I think there was some envy here. And there was also some simple hatred because he hated the righteousness of his brother. John uses this story as an illustration of the opposite of love and also an illustration of how the world treats the church. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. What he's saying is you should not be surprised when the world hates you because that is exactly what we see in this story. It's a picture of those who are not righteous hating those who are righteous. And you might be thinking as you hear this, and we're talking about the opposite of love, well, Pastor Nate, I get it. I agree with you, but I've never killed anyone. So I must be off the hook. John's not gonna let you do that because look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He gets that from his teacher in Matthew chapter five, when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He's saying, if we harbor hatred and anger and bitterness in our heart, we've already committed murder in our heart. The only thing that's stopping us are circumstances and consequences. What he's saying is that the very seeds of murder are in hatred and the opposite of love is harboring hatred toward another person. And I want you to think about Cain and Abel's story again. What would have happened if Cain had taken God's warning? When God saw how angry he was and God comes and says, hey, listen, sin's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You must not give in to that desire. You ever heard the saying before that time heals all wounds? Guys, that's stupid. <laughs> Sorry, I should have been more polite. Uh, that's, that's incorrect. Guys, it's not true. In fact, time often makes it worse. When sinful desires are not killed, time usually makes it worse. When you, we don't deal with anger, when we're offended and hurt and we don't deal with it biblically through biblical confrontation and forgiveness and reconciliation, oftentimes that anger turns into bitterness. That bitterness turns into hatred and hatred can have tragic results. Here's the, the implication of that. Man, if there's someone that you are hurt by or someone that you have hurt, make it right. Make it right. Don't sweep it under the rug. Deal with it. As Christians, we've got to learn to let go of anger and bitterness and instead walk in forgiveness and in reconciliation with others. So we've seen that hatred is the opposite of love. And here's why. Because love by its very nature is sacrificial. 
Love is sacrificial by its nature. God so loved the world that he gave, he sacrificially gave. Whereas hatred by its very nature takes, it takes away. Hatred says, you die for me. Love says, I'll die for you. That's the difference. Because what John is about to show us is the sacrifice of love. The sacrifice of love. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. By this we know love. That is, this is the supreme demonstration of love that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. What John is saying is that the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of love in the history of the world. And as Christians, we know that to be true. However, I think a lot of people look at the cross and they don't see it as the supreme demonstration of love because they don't understand what it accomplished. It's not just the fact that Jesus died for us that makes the cross an amazing demonstration of love. I mean, there have been plenty of martyrs in history. There have been plenty of people who have died for someone else in history. What makes the cross an amazing demonstration of love is why he died and what his death accomplished. One commentator illustrated it this way, kind of a humorous way. Uh, let's say that you were sitting at the end of a pier on a nice summer day and you're enjoying a nice breeze and you're looking out over the water. Uh, you're just enjoying the day. And some stranger comes sprinting down the dock. They shout at you, this is how much I love you. And they jump in the water and they drown. Would you feel very loved by this gesture? Probably not. I mean, you could have sent a card you know, uh, there's a lot of ways you could have demonstrated your love for me other than sacrificing your life for no reason. However, let's redo this illustration. Let's say you're sitting on the end of the pier and then for some reason, you know, you fall asleep or something and you fall in and you're drowning. And at the moment you're about to lose consciousness under the water, someone dives in, they pull you out, they swim you to shore, but somehow in the course of rescuing you, they end up losing their life. Different story, isn't it? That is a supreme demonstration of love because of the reason they sacrificed themselves to save you. And in the same way, why is the cross the supreme demonstration of love? Because it accomplished our ultimate need. Jesus died to save us from our sins. And seen in this light, the cross is so amazing that Jesus is God who took on human flesh in order to die to pay for our sins. As it says in John 15, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone should lay down his life for his friends. That is what Jesus did on the cross. He laid down his life for you and for me in the ultimate demonstration of love. And John's gonna follow through now in verse 16 to say, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, the word that's translated here as ought is a very strong word. In fact, I think ought is kind of a weak translation. They ought to have made it stronger, no pun intended. One lexicon says this word means to be under obligation to make a payment as the result of having previously received something of value. This same word is used elsewhere in the New Testament for owing a debt. This is what he's saying here. Because Jesus laid down his life for us, we are responsible we are obligated to love one another in the same way. 
that this is our duty, our responsibility to love others in the way that we have been loved. In this context, that would mean a willingness even to lay down our lives for our brothers, if that's what it calls for. This is a willingness to love others within the body of Christ to the fullest extent, even willing to lay down our lives for them. But next, John is gonna show us the generosity of love in verses 17 and 18. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So John goes from the most extreme example possible, laying down your life for someone, to a more practical day-to-day example. Your brother's in need, you have it, they don't, so you share with them. He switches from the extreme to the more mundane, and here's why I think he does that. If you're not willing to do the small thing, you'll never be willing to do the big thing. It's easy for us to give lip service to, I would lay down my life for this person. I would die for this person. But man, until we're willing to do the smaller, more everyday acts of love, we'll never be willing to do the bigger thing. In fact, it's the smaller everyday acts of love that enlarge our hearts that enable us to one day be able to do the larger acts of love. This is the example that he gives here in verse 17. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees someone in need, yet closes his heart against him. This means to have no compassion, to have no pity when you see someone in need, but to be closed off, to be cold-hearted. He said, how does God's love abide in him? It's not love in word or talk, but in deed or in truth. As I mentioned in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, we often do the whole, I love this person, but don't we? I love this person, but what he's saying is that kind of love is worthless. It's lip service. It does nothing. Real love is generous. It is sacrificial. It takes action on behalf of the person. James says something very similar in James chapter two. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if So the application here is very simple. Guys, love is practical. Love is practical. It's not just this emotional thing. It's not just this abstract reality. It's very practical. It's very tangible. It means seeking to meet the needs of other people sacrificially. So I wanna ask you very practically, think about your own life. Think about your schedule. Think about your family, your job. Think about your church family, your small group, the people in your circle of influence. What are the ways that you believe the Lord is calling you to very practically demonstrate the love of Christ in their life? It could look different for all of us, but the principle is the same for all of us, that we love one another sacrificially, that we love one another generously, that we refuse when we've been hurt to let those feelings of anger fester into bitterness and hatred, but instead we forgive and we make things right. That's what it looks like, according to John, to love one another. And he's going to show us that it is by this, it is by our loving one another that we can have assurance that we have passed from death into life, that we really are saved, because next we're gonna pivot and talk about heart reassurance but heart reassurance. 
This is what he's going to show us in the next paragraph, verses 19 through 24. Let's read these verses together. By this, so pause, I'm only two words in, I'm already stopping to talk. Uh, When he says by this, he's referencing back what we just studied, right? So he's saying by this, or by the way that we love one another, all right, so just keep that in mind. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is how we know we are of the truth that is saved, that we are Christians. He says that this is how we reassure our heart before him. Reassure is very strong in the original. It's the same word as to persuade or to convince The idea here is that even as believers, we can struggle with a sense of condemnation in our hearts. And he's showing us how we can persuade or convince our heart all over again of God's love for us. He says in verse 19, or verse 20 rather, whenever our heart condemns us. I take this condemnation to be this inner sense of guilt that causes us to doubt whether we are of the truth. It is doubt, it is fear, it is shame that clouds our sense of God's love for us in Christ. I like to use the illustration of, it's like we're living with this inner lawyer that is constantly in our heart and mind, accusing us and bringing us to a place of condemnation. Maybe it can look like condemnation over the past. Your inner lawyer can bring up things that you've done in your past, maybe before Jesus, and say, how do you think God could ever love you? forgive you with the things that you've done. Maybe it could be over present struggles or temptations. Your inner lawyer could be saying, if you really were a Christian, you would not be struggling with that. Maybe it could be over not even sin, but just a weakness in your life. You could look at this weakness and this area where you're struggling and your inner lawyer can be saying, and you call yourself a Christian. You should be better than this. You should be stronger than this. Sound familiar to anybody or is this just me? It's just me? Thanks. Well, then I'm preaching it to me. But we know that this sense of self-condemnation can be absolutely paralyzing and crippling in our spiritual lives. This doubt, this shame, this guilt can be crippling. And so what are we to do, according to John? How can we reassure our hearts before him? He tells us to rest in God's character. He invites us to rest in God's character. Verse 20 is a very precious verse. One of my favorites in 1 John. 1 John 3.20 says, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. God is greater than our heart. And how so? Well, if our heart condemns us, we need to remind our heart that God no longer condemns us because of Christ, because of what he has done. You see, the gospel is this. We deserve to be condemned because of our sin. But God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world who lived a perfect life. But on the cross, he was condemned in our place. 
He took the penalty for sin that you and I deserved. Then he bodily rose from the grave three days later so that now when we trust in Christ, Romans 8.1 is now true of us. It says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. The judge of the universe looks at your life. He smacks the gavel down and says, not guilty. Not because of anything you've done, not because of anything we could earn, but all because of Christ because he has taken our condemnation in our place. That's the gospel. So when our heart condemns us, we must remind our hearts that the God of the universe no longer condemns us. And it gets even better. I love this little comment he makes. He says, and he knows everything. Well, thanks for the theology lesson, John. Uh, we, We could read about the omniscience of God, how God eternally perfectly knows all things. But why is that relevant here? Here's why that's relevant. You're worse than you think. I love you. I'm worse than I think. You have no clue how sinful you are. I have no clue how sinful I am. If God were to peel back before my eyes the layers of pride and sin and darkness in my heart, it would probably be overwhelming. We have no clue how sinful we really are. But here's the deal. God does. He knows everything. God knows you so much better than you know you. God knows me so much better than I know me. And yet the God who knows everything is the same God who says not guilty. The God who knows me better than I know me is the same God that rejoices over me with loud singing, Zephaniah says. So here's the question I have for us this morning. If the God who knows everything does not condemn us, who do we think we are to condemn ourselves? with our very limited knowledge and perspective. Isn't that good news? I love the way that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4. These verses are very precious to me. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Just pause there. That's kind of funny to me. He's straight up telling this church, I don't care what y'all think. He's saying, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He takes it up a notch. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul's saying, I'm not stepping into that courtroom. I'm not going to be judged by you. I'm not even going to judge myself. Why? For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. According to Paul, the only opinion of him that matters is God's, not yours and not mine. The only judgment that matters is God's. This is what Tim Keller called in his excellent little booklet, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. This is the ability to be so secure in who you are in Christ, so secure in the love of the Father for you that you no longer need the approval of man, whether that's other people or your own. That is what frees you from the condemnation of your heart. When you're able to tell the inner lawyer that the case has already been settled, when you tell the inner lawyer that in Christ, you have already been to court, the penalty has already been paid in full and the judge has already declared you righteous. It is the character of God as revealed in the gospel that frees us and reassures our hearts when we face condemnation. So what do we do? What do we do when the condemnation starts to come back on and the inner lawyer starts to present his case again? This is what Keller writes in that booklet. But maybe you find yourself being sucked back into the courtroom, 
All I can tell you is that we have to relive the gospel every time we pray. We have to relive it every time we go to church. We have to relive the gospel on the spot and ask ourselves what we are doing in the courtroom. We should not be there. The court is adjourned. That's how we reassure our hearts before him whenever our heart condemns us, by reliving the gospel, by reminding our hearts of the gospel. And reassurance leads to some beautiful results in our lives, John is gonna show us. Reassurance leads to confidence in prayer. We move from a place of condemnation to confidence. This is what it says in verses 21 and 25. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. When we have this assurance, we have confidence before God. And he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. It's similar to what Jesus said in John chapter 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I, I think I'm obligated here to give this caveat. This verse is not a blank check, all right? This is not justification for any name it and claim it nonsense. Um, it's not as if you pray for that BMW in Jesus' name, pop, it's gonna show up in your driveway. That's not a license here to fulfill our own selfish desires. Rather, what he has in mind here is that we would have boldness and confidence in prayer, knowing that when our heart is in alignment with God's heart, he will say yes. Think about what he says in 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So that when our will is in alignment with the will of God, he says, yes. Friends, we need to know that our God knows how to give good gifts and that our father in heaven will always give us what is best for us. Our problem in prayer more often than not is not that God says no. Our problem in prayer is that we either don't ask at all or that we ask for the wrong things. And God is a good enough father to say no when we ask for the wrong things. I love this quote from Spurgeon. As always, he puts it better than I could. God does not give up his prerogative as king when he tells us to pray and promises to answer. He still holds everything in his own hands. You say to your child, my dear, I will give you anything that is for your good. He asks you to let him have his father's razors to play with. You know that very soon he will be cutting himself and you say, no, my child, that is preposterous. Or he asks you to let him have those sweets that are poisonous. And you say, no, my dear child, I have no doubt they taste sweet to your palate, but think of the bitter medicines you would have to take afterwards and of how much mischief they would do to you. No, I cannot let you have those. So it is with our God. He denies us many things that we wish for because they are not good for us. But there is one thing that is certain. He does not withhold good from those who walk blamelessly. And here's the key quote. If it is really good for you, you shall have it and God shall be glorified by it. That's what these verses are showing us. So what's the application here? It's simple. Have confidence before him. Because our hearts have been reassured, we have confidence before him. In other words, pray boldly. Come into the throne of grace and pray boldly. You know, G. Campbell Morgan was a British evangelist and pastor. And one time a woman came up to him after a sermon and asked him, pastor, can I pray for little things or only big things when I pray? 
His response was, ma'am, everything in your life is little compared to God. <laughs> Let me suggest to you, you've, there's no such thing as a big thing with God. They're all little compared to the sovereign God of the universe. He is in control. He is all powerful. And so what do we do? We pray boldly and we trust God with his answers. We trust that even a no from God is for our good. And his yeses are for our good. Everything is for our good, Romans 8, 28. He goes on to say that when our hearts have been set free from condemnation, it gives us this confidence. And we have this confidence because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. As we've talked about throughout this sermon series, obedience to God's commandments leads to a deeper assurance. And his command is simple, verse 23, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Real simple, not rocket science. That we believe the gospel and that we love one another. I have one final point this morning. And that's that the witness of the spirit brings reassurance. He closes the section of verse 24 by saying, by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he has given us. That's the Holy Spirit. We know that we are in him because of the Holy Spirit bearing witness with us that we are children of God. It's what Paul teaches in Romans chapter eight, verse 14. He says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He says, we know that we are Christians. We know that we are of the truth, that he abides in us because of the Holy Spirit within us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to provide this assurance, to tell us that we are saved, to bear witness with our spirit. And how does he do it? The spirit produces the longing in us for God for a relationship with God. The spirit prompts us to cry out to God as father, to say, Abba, father. The spirit overcomes our inherent selfishness and self-reliance and he replaces it with a dependence on the Lord, with a desire to run to the father. So how do we know that God abides in us? Because the spirit is creating in us this longing for a relationship with God. Our hearts are reassured as we look to him and we see him. You know, we went to uh, Bush Gardens yesterday. We were there right before this like monsoon came uh, and we had to leave because it was just like pouring down rain everywhere. Uh, but I was able to get Hannah to go on the log flume. And Hannah's three years old, for those of you who don't know. And the whole time we're in line, she was so excited about going on the log flume. She was pumped. She was ready to go. She's giddy with excitement as she's watching the thing go down there. So we get in the log and we start going up the hill and she's all of a sudden like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Too scared. Don't want to do it. I'm like, babe, this log has already sailed. Like, uh, we're stuck now. You got to do it. So I'm trying to kind of get her to calm down. She's like, I don't want to do it. I'm too scared. This is what I noticed, though, that she kept doing. So I'm sitting behind her in the log. She's sitting up in the front. And she kept doing this as we're sitting there. She just turned around real quick, make sure I'm still there. Like, I haven't jumped out of the log and ran away or something. Making sure I'm still there. And as long as she could know I was right there, she was fine. And so we made it through the ride. She didn't cry or anything. But as we were going off, she said, I don't want to do that next time. Okay. <laughs> well, here's the point. 
what gave her peace and her little heart to be able to go through with this was that she could see that I was there. She kept turning around and seeing her father. The Holy Spirit brings reassurance to our hearts by prompting us to cry out, Abba, Father. By prompting us to look for our father, to cry out to him. How do you know you're a Christian? One of the chief ways is, are you doing that? Do you have this impulse to run to the father or run away from him like Adam and Eve did when they sinned? Do you desire God? Not just his gifts, but do you desire God? Are you looking for him? Are you seeking him? That's one of the clearest ways that we know that he abides in us, the spirit whom he has given us, who dwells within us. And so at this time, I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up and we're gonna close with singing. I'd like to invite the prayer team to come forward. But I wanted to leave with this thought as we're concluding this morning. You know, we've talked about the need that we have to be reassured of our faith in the midst of condemnation. We talked about how we can have confidence that our faith is genuine because of our love for one another. We know that we have the confidence of God's gracious character as revealed in the gospel, confidence in prayer, the witness of the Holy Spirit, so on and so forth. And my question is, as I close is very simple this morning. As you examine your own life, does that sound familiar? Do these things sound familiar? Boldness in prayer, the witness of the Spirit causing you to cry out to God, freedom from condemnation and shame and doubt. Does that sound familiar? Because if it does, let me encourage you to continue, as it says in 2 Peter, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure that assurance and reassurance is something that we continue throughout life, continue to pursue Christ. But if that does not sound familiar to you, let me encourage you to examine yourself. Maybe you need to do business with God today. Maybe you need to come to the Father for the first time asking for forgiveness and grace, knowing that his arms are open wide. If that's you, we have prayer team members here who would love to share with you the good news of the gospel, would love to pray with you until you can have that confidence in your heart that you really do belong to God, that your sins really are forgiven, that you really are on the way to eternal life. If that's you today, I'd love to invite you to come during this last song. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that in the midst of self-condemnation, you do not condemn us because of Christ. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to bear witness that we are children of God. We thank you that you invite us to come before you boldly in prayer. Father, I pray that you would so work in our hearts to bring us this reassurance and peace that only comes from knowing you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Bless us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen.